All right, we're covering like a crazy amount of ground today. Not in terms of verses, but because of the names that are in these verses and to become familiarized with these heroes of the faith. Uh, these people that we've all named kids after for some 2,000 years. And we begin in verse 12 where we left off as we look at the naming and the, the gathering of the 11 apostles that are left. Here we go, starting in verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were standing. On the Mount of Olives is where Jesus ascended into heaven itself. It's, it's just a, you know, a kilometer, maybe at most, uh, from, from the Temple Mount and from where they're going to go. But it was the high point, and you're, they'll always be reminded of Jesus and his final words and his ascension because of that Mount of Olives will always be in view, whatever it is that they do there in the city of Jerusalem. And, and when they arrived over now in back in Jerusalem, just again, a kilometer away, they went upstairs. This is the upper room uh, where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all gathered together constantly in prayer. The word that's used there of their absolute accord as they were in prayer together is a word that's used 11 times in the Bible, 10 times in the book of Acts. A very powerful word. Homothumadon is the, is the Greek word. And it is the idea of being so absolutely melded together, not just mind, but heart, soul, passions, completely intertwined and aligned for a greater cause. And in this case, this was their prayer. Jesus told them, you wait these next days. You wait and you pray. And it's exactly what they did. Of one accord, completely together, praying to the Lord after the astonishing experience of seeing him rise up to ascend, ascend to be the king, the king of the cosmos, their rabbi. Everything was right. It's all true. We won. We can't wait to see what's next. And in waiting for what's next, that have this spirit of unity in prayer together. But there's a bit of a cloud that hangs over it as well, as there are only 11, of course, that are mentioned. And so, in the, and I'm sorry, I'll finish in verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer. But by the way, prayer pervades the book of Acts. There are 31 times that prayer is mentioned and emphasized, actually, in the book of Acts, not just an aside, but actually a hallmark of their activity. Matter of fact, and it's not just this all grouped together in one spot. Of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts, 20 of them have episodes of prayer among the disciples. They all joined constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This will be the last mention of Mary in the New Testament, by the way. I'll, I'll discuss her in a moment. Uh, but it is interesting that Luke goes out of his way, as he has done throughout his gospel, too, to make sure that the readers hear that this was not an all-boys club. And that women were just as active. They were there joining in prayer, completely anticipatory of the, the, the words of Christ and the gift of the Father that is the Holy Spirit that was to come. 
In those days, verse 15, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, and he shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open. All his intestines spilled out. Again, some will say, well, how does that harmonize with the gospel account? It could have just been that as he hung himself and when his body was cut down, uh, that, that, that from that hanging, when, when he hit the ground easily, it could have resulted in the, the continuing kind of disgusting scene that we have here of, of his entrails, of his intestines uh, spilling out. And everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldema, um, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms. And, and here's why I say it probably was also a heavy time for them. It's not as though Jesus showed any different attitude towards Judas. Nor do we have any indication that any of the apostles did either. However, it is interesting that of the 12 apostles, all of them were from Galilee, from Bethsaida or Capernaum, that area up by the Sea of Galilee, uh, except for one, and that was Judas. Judas was from Jerusalem, and so he may have, of course, maybe been a, been a bit uh, different from the rest, only because he didn't have a lot of the interworking relationships that many of them might have had one with another. But nonetheless, there was never an indication that there was any sort of an attitude towards him. And so for 12 years, for th- I'm sorry, for three years, the 12 of them together, working side by side, seeing the miracles, going out, preaching to, to thousands. They saw that you know, Satan fall like lightning, or, or Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning by the work that they did together. That was glory upon glory upon glory. And then whatever got him twisted, and however Satan was able to deceive him, thinking that perhaps the revolution was supposed to look differently and perhaps just disenchanted him in some way or another, and and sadly, he betrays. But how much it must have hurt, not just Jesus, but also his buds. And, And to think that this was the psalm that Peter was contemplating. Psalm 69. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. I'm reading from verse 20. For, said Peter, is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. Keep your finger here and turn over to Psalm 69 just for a moment. And, and my goodness, the subject matter of this psalm, to have to have that applied to your friend. Verse 22, may the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. The very words that he just read. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those who wound and they talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. That would be no way a joyful moment for the disciples, but a very heavy one. And for Peter to have to even refer to that psalm publicly to the 120 would have been a a very deep moment of anguish. 
But then he also recognizes that they are to, in their mind, fulfill Ezekiel 36. The bringing together of the two branches. That when the kingdom comes, all the tribes will be united. The ten tribes that had been dispersed. Only Judah and Benjamin left of the, of, the, uh, of the twelve tribes. That ultimately all twelve tribes, the northern tribes, the southern tribes, the two sticks, rejoined Ezekiel 36. It's, it's a prophecy that's fulfilled through the Holy Spirit, through the coming of the kingdom. All of it seems to be coming together for them at this moment. And so, of course, Peter recognizes that we are to be the ones that then sit in, in judgment or, or rule of the 12 tribes. And, and in his mind, all of this is coming in that way about just simply the 12 tribes of, of Jerusalem, of Judah, of Israel and Judah. And, and, and for him, this is still Israel. This is still Israel and Judah that he only has in mind that is going to kind of all be brought into a new kingdom, a kingdom that is going to be ruled like a new David. But now David is really, we know, really fulfilled in a greater king in Jesus who now sits enthroned at heaven. And now we're going to be ruled from heaven, 12 tribes all together. That's his mindset. And he's thinking we need to have a 12th to be able to help us as we bring the 12 tribes together. And in some have said, well, did Peter act a little bit impetuously? Again, the, the text doesn't say so. But what is said in, in our, our uh, reading earlier from what Jesus said in the first 11 verses is he said to the apostles, here's what I want you to do. Just sit and wait and pray until the Holy Spirit comes. And again, they did. They, they waited. They prayed. But some have said, but there was no actual uh, command to kind of close off the twelve. And so did he act impetuously or not? Hard to tell. Text doesn't actually give us any indication. But it does seem as though they are trying to listen to the Holy Spirit. And they're trying to be guided by the Holy Spirit. But something else happens here that is a bit odd. In that in the choosing of the twelve, they cast lots. Here, let's read about it. May another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. When they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. That's an important idea here. Is that what is the qualification to be a, an apostle, capital A apostle, to fulfill the apostolic ministry? The qualification is that it was one who was with us and was with the Lord Jesus. That had a, a, a direct connection with the Lord Jesus. And he even says from John's baptism until this time on which he was taken up. Later, when Paul tries to defend himself as an apostle, to the Corinthians in particular, and you can read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2 especially, he says, you know what, you want to come at me for, for being an apostle? Maybe it's because you think I'm not qualified? Well, guess what? I have walked with the living Jesus. That's what he uses to defend his apostolic office. And so it seems as if that's a, a, a rather important criteria. Now, today, there are a lot of kind of, you know, I'll, I'll um, maybe um, caricaturize it as like a storefront type church where it's, you know, the, the apostle, you know, Naomi, whatever, that is, is going to you know, kind of lead in some great miracle healing situation. Well, again, to call yourself an apostle 
and you were not walking with Jesus in his ministry, well, then you're not really standing on biblical grounds. You just want to perhaps have an aggrandized title that is baseless and, if anything, perhaps heretical. And to be very careful about such things. Again, I don't want to get caught too much up in patterns and patternistic stuff, as I mentioned. I'd rather us just you know, go after the spirit of the book of Acts and the, and the thrill and the boldness and the passion of the book of Acts if we're going to have anything that's going to guide us in seeing what it's like to be the church as we look at the early church. But in, in some cases, when you, when you see some things that are off like that, it's rather important. We'll talk about that more later in Acts chapter 8 when we look at some of the special powers that are prescribed only to the apostles. Uh, ascribed only to the apostles. Verse 23. So they nominated two men. And we, we see that. And they said, please tell us which of these belongs. Then they cast lots. And th- that might have been a, maybe a two-colored stone of some sort. And the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. You think, wow, that sounds odd, right? And, and, and maybe it was that they, they really came to a place where they weren't seeing much. And, but it does seem as though they really want the Lord to, to act here. Again, nothing is said by Luke, the narrator, that they did anything off. So we got to assume that this is right. People have made sense of this. I say, well, it's prior to the Holy Spirit coming. And so perhaps it's still kind of before the new covenant comes in fullness. Because in the old covenant, there was a practice of of using uh, Uman and Thurman. I always want to say Uma Thurman. Uh, But but using using the two two stones to, to be able to determine Lord's will in different cases. But if you are acting... By the under the auspices of Lord God and in alignment with his will, that perhaps then he will actually be able to, to show his will through this. And we have to assume that they were doing all of those things and they were in alignment. And, and of course they were. Uh, and that God was being able to guide them through that. You know, actually, when we think, oh, wow, that seems like such an odd practice. Well, what happened here in Virginia? Just what? Last week. Last week in the 94th District, which is Newport News. We actually had a tie in the, uh, the, the race for the, the House of Reps for Virginia. And, and at the end of the day, it, it came down to David Yancey and Shelley Simons, and they both had the same number of votes. So what did, what did they do? They took two old film canisters, back when you used to use something called film. I don't know where they found them. Uh, and they wrote their names, put them in a film canister, each of their names. They put Yancey and Simons in the two film canisters, put it in some sort of a ceramic bowl, one person kind of, you know, uh, shuffled them up. Well, there were only two in there. The other person reached in, reached out the name, and hey, you know what? David Yancey wins re-election. Uh, not for anything except that his name was picked uh, out of the hat there. So for those of us who think, well, we're so evolved, we wouldn't have done something that way. Well, welcome to the uh, Virginia legislature. <laughs> so we have an opportunity right now, and uh, we'll, we'll see how quickly I can, I can go through this, to be able to look at... These men that were there when Jesus gave the charge, go, go discipleize the earth, go make disciples of all the earth, go convert everything you can and teach them to obey everything that you were commanded as well. In other words, replicate yourself as you go. Now, it would be very helpful to see what kind of lives did they live. We see, to some degree in the scriptures, some of their lives. We see a little bit more of, let's say, Peter or Paul. Maybe a little bit more of James and John in the Gospels. But, but we don't see much. But yet, they obviously changed the world. Because everything changed, even in their lifetimes. 
Christianity spread and gained traction and footings all, all the way from France, Britain, southern Russia, all the way through Armenia. Armenia was, was really well evangelized. Up into China, India, northern Africa, Ethiopia, Egypt. All of that changed in their lifetimes. And they're the standard bearers that Jesus says that, okay, you go and everyone that becomes a Christian needs to be replicated based on everything that I've commanded you. So what you do is replicated in the next and so on and so on and so on. Brilliant, infallible plan. So long as nobody decides that I'm going to compromise on what it means to obey everything that Jesus taught. These 11 and then adding Matthias, these 12 certainly did not. Let's take a look at these guys and, and, and recognize that we stand in this lineage. We are another link in this chain because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And let's make our way through and, and uh, be able to appreciate some of these. So Peter is the first one mentioned here. I'm going to go through the list as they're mentioned here in Acts chapter 1 verse uh, 13. So first, of course, uh, Peter. And for, for Peter, just a, a couple things that I think that are, are, are quite interesting is that after we kind of get the spotlight off of him from the scriptures, and that's what I'm going to do for most of these guys, is look at the research that has been done by a few people. And the, the, the one book that has been you know, really rather interesting for me to read uh, was, was by one fellow who made 29 trips to the Holy Land. Made, made over 40, 50 trips all throughout like the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea and, and, and throughout Europe and Iran just to be able to, to find whatever oral tradition, written tradition, archaeological tradition that could be found to be able to piece together anything that could be understood about the ongoing life of the apostles. Certainly Luke is able to have a bit of a perspective, but he wasn't everywhere. So what happened to everybody else? Because these are the folks that we're being replicated by. These are the ones that we are to imitate. Let's look at their lives. Let's hold on tight because, my goodness, what it is that they do. So uh, Peter was imprisoned repeatedly in Jerusalem. We'll see his imprisonment coming up in a couple chapters, the first one. But it happened repeatedly for him. By the way, he was also described in, in a lot of the extra biblical documents as a man of average size, a bit tall. He was slender. His hair was short and thick. He had a very curly beard and thin eyebrows or almost no eyebrows at all, to which I say amen. Uh, he was, he, he was uh, also very pale in, in many of the descriptions of him. And after his repeated imprisonments in Jerusalem with his wife, he went and evangelized throughout Babylon. And it's thought that while in Babylon with his wife, that he wrote the letter of 1 Peter during a time of intense persecution as Nero rose to power. We, we know that he evangelized from his wife, even from the Gospels, or from the New Testament, because Paul says, do I not have the right to bring along a believing wife, as does Peter or Cephas? Uh, also, by the way, he later then went to Rome for a while there, teaming up with John Mark. John Mark, who was uh, younger than he, also wrote the Gospel of Mark, uh, was his translator, or a technical term for somebody who writes stuff down, and he manuensis. And what, what he did, John Mark did, is 
he captured many of the sermons that, that Peter preached while in Rome fervently and later was asked by many, can you put together at least a, a short history of all that went on with Jesus and his followers? And, and supposedly that was the beginning of the gospel of Mark. Um, in Rome, under Nero, he was tortured terribly. For nine months, he was, according to, to church history, uh, in nine months under Nero, he was in a prison with no light whatsoever uh, and uh, strapped to a, uh, to, to a post often and, uh, again, mercilessly tortured during that period of time. Uh, ultimately then being called out uh, for crucifixion. And when he, when he was let out uh, for his crucifixion, he was crucified upside down in Rome, asking to be crucified that way, feeling as though he, did not, he was not worthy to die in the same way uh, that his Lord had died. And some of us have, have um, kind of seen the musical, but it, it, it doesn't come from nothing, where as he was being called out and, and was walking to his place of persecution... He saw his wife and uh, while walking to his persecution, saw her and had a moment of comfort and was able to address her by name and simply said to her, remember the Lord. And with that, went to his crucifixion. Uh, John, who is listed next, uh, was the last of, of all the apostles uh, to be to be killed. And, and matter of fact, he, he died uh, at an old age of about 100 he was the brother of James, he was, who was the first martyr. He was also the son of Salome, listed in the scriptures. And it, it's thought by, by many, even New Testament scholars, that Salome is Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister, making him then a cousin of Jesus. But it would also make sense for when Jesus is on the cross and he says, uh, Mother, here is your son, uh, son, here is your mother, uh, that he would be then taking care of his aunt. Uh, and he would have been the younger of, of the disciples. He, he moved to Ephesus just before 70 AD. 70 AD is where Jerusalem is destroyed. Jesus actually predicted that on the Mount of Olives, telling them that when you see those times coming, you leave. And the disciples, in fact, did leave Jerusalem. Uh, and it is likely that when he moved to, to Ephesus, he did so with Mary. And uh, according to some accounts, Mary then lived in Ephesus just a few years before she then died. Uh, also, he was, uh, uh, during some of the earlier, uh, some of the later persecutions after Nero, uh, other persecutions came under the emperor Domitian, and he was exiled by Domitian to the island of Patmos. Recently, some of us on a tour went to that island. Uh, we saw the spot where perhaps he received the revelation. It was there that he captured the, the book of Revelation. He also wrote his gospel and his letters, perhaps when he returned to Ephesus. It was only a little while that he was there, only about two years in, in Patmos. Returned to Ephesus where he lived until a very late age. Uh, one of the things... And he, he was the last to die. He died 68 years after his Lord. Some estimated around the year 100 or so. One of the stories is even as an old man, when he came back to Ephesus, he learned that one of his converts had actually uh, lost his faith and had joined up with a, a group of outlaws up in the mountains. And he, even as a, a frail old man, 
headed off after him, climbed the mountain, braved through the, the treacherous areas of this kind of gang violence that was their territory, made his way through, found his way all the way to the leader of this group, which was his convert, uh, and was, was able to plead with him to be able to come back to the Lord. It's one of the more famous stories of him as a very old age. John was... Uh, so infirmed as he, you know, maybe perhaps came, came near the age of 100 or at least into his 90s, that he had to be carried into church. And, and every time he was gathered into the bodies, the people actually grew a little bit tired of him because he said the same thing all the time. And maybe we do that perhaps when we get much older. But the one thing that he, that he supposedly said all the time was, little children love one another. After they became a bit weary of hearing this, one of them asked, why do you always say this? And he just replied, it's the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, well, then that's enough. Uh, and he died a natural death in Ephesus. Uh, James, his younger, uh, his older brother, uh, James is, is martyred in the book of Acts. He is the, the brother of John that we just mentioned. There are a couple James that are, that are mentioned here. He also is the daughter of the son of Salome, Mary's sister. He lived for 14 years before he's martyred in the book of Acts. He was one of the early ones to head out and be able to preach in, in other lands. And he preached all throughout Spain. He was beheaded by Herod Agrippa back in Jerusalem on, throughout the Easter celebration of 44 AD. And as he was led to his, to his uh, slaughter there, it is said that the one who was his accuser came to walk with him. He came to walk with him to see him defeated. But when his accusers saw James so bright and cheerful and walking triumphantly to his execution, the other person realized there is something more that I have not estimated, not only in this man, but in this Lord that he follows. Along the way, he began to listen to James. James converted him. He pro proclaimed Jesus to be Lord. And there, as James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa, so was his accuser, because he stood in consolidation, uh, solidarity with him uh, at, at, at his uh, execution. Uh, Andrew. Andrew is Peter's brother. He evangelized along the Caucasus, the Caucasus uh, Mountains, and the Caspian Sea in Eastern Europe. Uh, technically the area of Georgia. In between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, if you know your geography. Many of us don't. Why? Because we're Americans. And, but, but along that little area there, just south of Russia, is Georgia, Armenia, Rabla is, uh, is Iran. Over to the, the side is, is uh, Turkey. All in that area, many of the early apostles ended up, that, that ended up being a place where many of them actually crisscrossed their paths. And, and especially then would, would have been Andrew as well. Again, evangelized in the area, but he also then moved down from there and preached throughout Turkey, Istanbul, modern day Istanbul, wasn't called that then. Uh, later on throughout Macedonia, which, is modern, which we know from the Bible as places like Philippi and Thessalonica, and then made his way further down into Greece. And it was there that he was hung from a cross for three days. And during that time, preached the love of Jesus to his persecutors. The crowd that was there was so astounded by his preaching and by his perseverance that they were converted. And 
insisted to the proconsul that he be taken down. The proconsul, so overwhelmed by the crowd that had come to him, realized that he was getting nowhere and gave orders to take Andrew down. He was tied to an X-shaped cross, not a T-shaped cross. He was tied to an X-shaped cross. The crosses of Europe on many of the flags are Jesus' cross, but the cross for Scotland is X-shaped because it's Andrew's cross. And when UK comes together, they, they also mesh together the flags of, of England, which is a, you know, a red cross on a white field background, as, as well as the, the uh, flag of Scotland, which is an X-shaped cross. And so that's why you get that rather complicated looking flag of England, because it is the superimposing of both Jesus's cross and Andrew's cross. But nonetheless, Andrew is on this cross. The governor does order him down just as they cut the ropes. Yeah, he, he falls to the ground and, and dies. But one of the most famous sermons of all time, many have said, was Andrew's sermon while he was being hung there in Greece for those three days. By the way, these are the ones that we are called to replicate. Philip. So we, we, we of course, know Philip from, from the Gospels. But after the ascension of Christ, he traveled to southern Russia, that same area that I mentioned before between the Black and Caspian Seas. And he preached for 20 years in that area. Armenia is in that area too. He was later joined by Bartholomew and went down to Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. Uh, those are known as the Lycus Valley churches. They're all grouped pretty closely together. They're all well within a day's walk of each other. Deb and I actually saw the spot where he was buried and where he was um, crucified uh, there in Hierapolis. And then the story of his crucifixion is that while in Hierapolis with Bartholomew, he healed and converted the proconsul's wife of the city of Heropolis. Uh, but as he was doing so, he said to her, you know what? If I do this, your husband's going to crucify me. And that really happened. He didn't say it that way. I was, never mind. It was supposed to be slightly funny. And it's like, went over like that. Never mind. You know, like today's, man, if I do that, they're going to crucify me. Never mind. Anyway, moving on. Thank you for the uh, mercy laughter that just came from the back. Uh, but indeed, the proconsul crucified him and Bartholomew. Uh, for some reason, there, there was something that happened where they decided to take Bartholomew down from his cross. Uh, however, Philip was uh, crucified at the age of 87 after a long and successful uh, preaching career uh, throughout all of those areas that, that I've just mentioned. Uh, moving on to Thomas. Now, Thomas, you know, in the Gospels, you get a hint of him. He, he even says to Jesus, you know what? Let us go to Jerusalem with you and we'll die with you, Jesus. Like you get these hints of Thomas that, that he's got something going on under the hood. That there's a, a whole lot of boldness ready to be unleashed in Thomas. And, and he, did, he was like one of the most fearless preachers of the original 11 or 12. But... You ask for a little evidence just once. And do they call you Thomas the church builder? Do they call you Thomas the fearless preacher? No. Doubting Thomas. It's like the most misplaced modifier ever for this guy. Because the stories of him give you goosebumps. Matter of fact, Deb and I and some of the teens, I think, that, that went to uh, uh, Chennai this past year, you went to the very spot where you saw him run through with a lance by the pagan priests for unapologetically preaching the gospel of Jesus without compromise. He established the Christian church in Babylon. As I mentioned, fearless evangelist, great church builder. Uh, he also then moved on to preach in Persia, 
which is modern-day Iran, went into India, converted many. He had a disciple who made his way into China. He himself made inroads into China itself. The, the biggest geographic impact was by Thomas. And in Chennai, in 49 AD, again, not many years of, of work to be able to do all that he did there, in 49 AD, run through the back uh, for, uh, for, for preaching the gospel. Bartholomew, he was, uh, he was said to have wore the same clothing for 26 years. Now, maybe this part is kind of a bit legendary at this point. And, and the same shoes, and that they never wore out, but that he just simply trusted in the Lord. Didn't, didn't take an extra bag, didn't take extra sandals, kind of went out on the mission just as Jesus told them to. And he was on that mission in Luke chapter 10, where they were told to take nothing for the journey. The only thing that he did, though, was he prayed a hundred times a day and a hundred times each night. It is said that he had the most powerful voice among the apostles, a voice like a trumpet. He also was quite gifted in many, many languages, perhaps supernaturally. Uh, and he was always cheerful. And so he was always bright. You might call him Breitbart. <laughs> he was ordered crucified with Philip in Hierapolis, but uh, he was inexplicably taken down from his cross. He didn't, after that, say, well, I better lay low. He didn't. He then went to Armenia, where he was flayed alive. In nearby Azerbaijan. That means skinned alive. Because he would not rescind his convictions of Jesus. And would not stop converting the people of that area. Matthew, the writer of the gospel. Also known as Levi, the tax collector. He was brother of James, James son of Alphaeus. They'll be listed next. He remained in Jerusalem 15 years before he started his missionary journeys. And his missionaries took him to Persia, Ethiopia, and Egypt. And it's likely that he was killed uh, by, by being hit with a fuller's club on the head in either Ethiopia or Egypt. James, son of Alphaeus, is the other James, also known as James the Lesser. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that he may have been the son of Mary, who is the wife of Cleophas, who in Cleophas was also known as, in some writings, Alphaeus. So the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 may have been the parents of Matthew and James, James the Lesser. Uh, James the Less, he evangelized Syria, and he also was a, a brilliant church leader. Later, he was stoned in Jerusalem, refusing to deny his Lord. And there's a bit of a mix-up on which James it was, James the brother of Jesus, or this James who may have been thrown down from the temple while, while up there proclaiming Jesus, thrown down from the temple. And when he didn't die from that, they, they, they went down and then stoned him to death again because he, he would not deny Christ. Simon the Zealot. And a, a Zealot was a political party that was looking to overthrow violently Rome. Of course, he, he repented and, and went after an overthrow supernaturally through the Holy Spirit. He left Jerusalem quickly to go evangelize Egypt, North Africa, and Carthage. It is interesting that Carthaginian Christians were always known as the most radical Christians throughout church history. 
And perhaps a little bit of the zealots' influence in founding the churches there may have had a lasting impact. And maybe as he replicated himself, that aspect of himself seemed to make its way through the Carthaginians. From Carthage, this is interesting. He moved on to Spain, and he's also the only one that we know of the early apostles that made his way even up to Britain itself. Uh, And it was in Britain where he died. There are actually two strong traditions about his death. He may have been sawn in two in Persia or crucified in Britain in 61 AD. One of those two fates befell him. The the historical evidence doesn't make it clear one way or another. But, wow, what, what radical, deliberate intentionality to go and bring the gospel everywhere. Uh, Judas, son of James, he has actually kind of the most number of names. And probably if you're named the same name as Judas Iscariot, you'd probably come up with a whole lot of different names, too. He's known as Jude. He's known as Judas Thaddeus. He's known as Labaius or even just as Thaddeus. Just anything but Judas, the other Judas. Right? Call me what you want. You can call me Ray. You can call me Jay. That's really old. Uh, first apostle to leave Jerusalem. Very first apostle to leave Jerusalem for missions. And he was the first to appear before a foreign Gentile king and bring the full gospel message of Jesus. He also began the work in Armenia, a very, very fruitful work in Armenia that many of the other apostles joined in on. He was later helped by both Bartholomew and Thomas while there. And finally, he was martyred and buried in nearby Iran. Finally, Judas Iscariot. Uh, Judas of Kiriath, perhaps is where his name comes from. Kiriath would have been the town that he is from. Or uh, Ishkara is the, uh, the Hebrew or the Aramaic, meaning the one who lies. Uh, there are a lot of different ideas of the origin of his name. But, but, but sadly, he was one who not only betrayed Jesus, but also sadly modeled worldly sorrow in the face of sin. And all of his sorrow had to do with his own inconvenience, with his own personal failure, rather than holding on to a godly sorrow that really does bring not only repentance, but salvation. We've already mentioned uh, Psalm 69, the considerations of him, how sad that must have been for the disciples. And then, of course, we we just read about the choosing of Matthias. And we'll close with with Matthias. Uh, And again, not as much said about him, but the tradition was that he was one of the 70 disciples sent out by Jesus in Luke chapter 10. It would make sense since he was with them from the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist all the way until his ascension. Along with Jude and Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot and Andrew, he was credited with the evangelization of Armenia. He He befell many, many great perils One of the two towns in in Armenia, Colchis and Sebastopol, are are two of the places where he was. Uh, And over and over again, he was brought under uh, terrible, terrible tortures. But he likewise was executed for the faith. So I think now we kind of get a good picture of these guys. But we get a picture of the 11 that were there that heard, go and make disciples. And teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. All of the people that they then taught, were taught to obey everything that they were commanded. What if you were one of those? Would you continue the chain of faith that begins with Jesus and is given to the 11? Think about these 11 as they stood there, Jesus ascended, saying, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always. Everything that you've been commanded. And they did. 
and Christianity exploded in their lifetime. Because Jesus' plan is that elegant and that brilliant and that powerful. But it all falls apart the minute any of us thinks, obey everything. Did he really mean everything? The minute that any of that even enters into where Christianity looks something other than this, looks something other than the book of Acts, then there are so many pitfalls that befall Christianity and the wheels come off the cart. Number one, because then those who don't obey everything just don't do the work of faith that, that boils up from within us when we realize all that Jesus has done for us. And then even more so, they then become a dead end or even worse, a corrupting chain. Because then all that would follow or all that would come in contact with them would see, maybe that's the standard of Christianity. Maybe that's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That compromise. But any compromise on our part compromises the entire commission. So as we look at these guys, what Jesus said was not theory. When he was with them, he said, any of you wants to be my disciple... Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It wasn't be willing to take up your cross. It was actually, oh, and take up your cross. I think we need to take a serious consideration right now before we depart these names. To really consider, did I also decide to deny myself, take up the cross, and follow Jesus? Would I want someone else to look at me and say, that's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Would I want them to have a shorthand, kind of Cliff Notes version of uh, what it means to obey everything that Jesus has commanded by looking at my life and they would be able to kind of get a snapshot of that? Brothers and sisters, there's no other option. If this is not where we're at, let today be the day that we reclaim this lineage. That we fall in alignment once again with what it is to be a disciple made by a disciple made by Jesus. That that we are disciples who make disciples and disciples who obey everything. That there is nothing that that we filter, but that we, like childlike faith, grab onto what it is that he has given us here. Not only live it for ourselves, share it with one another, reinforce it through fellowship, but also with all that we have to bring it to all. Because there's no other plan to do so but through us. Let's go. Let's preach Jesus. Amen.